MSW Media. This week, Donald Trump called for a boycott of AT&T because he disagrees with the coverage he receives from the CNN News Network, which is owned by AT&T. We also learned that Trump told his aides to block the merger of AT&T and Time Warner, which owned CNN, due to CNN's coverage. This was just the latest attack by Trump against the free press. What legal protections do we have against Trump's attacks on freedom of speech and the free press? How can we preserve the First Amendment when the president is attacking the press and calling for courts to weaken First Amendment protections? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who joins us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to say I was both surprised and not surprised when Trump was attacking AT&T this week. I guess I would just say disheartened because the attack by the tax by him on the First Amendment uh, and 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 First Amendment values just seem to be nonstop. You know, my uh, issue has always been from the very beginning when President Trump announced his uh, candidacy is the way people fall in line or follow his lead and jump on these words and, and, and believe it. And not only believe it, because that the day he announced, I, you know, I said, take this man seriously. He may very well be the next president of the United States. And even saying that, I started getting hate texts that day, started getting threats and attacks. And, and it has been pretty consistent in the entire term of uh, it, not just as administration, but even while he was running. For me, the problem has always been the people who believe him and not and beyond that who act on it. I have to say, I mean, it is it has certainly been relentless. I get many um, messages from Trump supporters on a regular basis, and I have many family members who voted for Trump. So I can see how their views on subjects are shaped so strongly by their news sources, whether it's Fox News or uh, radio stations that they listen to, or uh, Trump himself and some of the uh, publications that have, uh, really repackage uh, what you know, he his messages and what some of his close allies say. I mean, there's really fairly small group of pundits and opinion uh, folks on that side of the aisle that are pumping out a lot of content uh, that reinforces almost propaganda like messages. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've had friends who when uh, I, there's a, a journalist here who said she was crossing the street and someone said, hey, you work at uh, WGN Radio. And she was like, yes, just cross just on Michigan Avenue. And they said, well, I hope I hope you die. You know, we've had death threats here at WGN. We've had to up our security. It has been, uh, and everyone, you know, keeps their head down, just keeps doing their job. And that's part of it, too, is that journalists have to keep showing up, and it's not that easy. Yeah, it's tough. Journalism is already um, a a profession that it's very rewarding 
personally in terms of I think it's, it's work that you can feel good about and feel passionate about, but it's been uh, a profession that's been economically under attack for years. And now with Trump kind of um, calling the press the, en- the enemy of the American people and stirring up hatred towards members of the, pr- of the press, I think it's becoming a, a hostile uh, profession to enter. And, you know, one of the things uh, I, I can encourage, I would encourage people to do is get your subscriptions and support, you know, the folks that are doing the work, whatever news outlet that is. You know, I have my Washington, you know, I got the Post, I've got the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune. You know, I try to, that's, you know, they are going under. A lot of these newspapers, it's predicted that they won't survive for the next, in the next 10, 15 years. Well, it's interesting to me in an age when journalists are under attack in many different ways. In many ways, this has been an age in which journalists have been doing more than ever. They've been faced with covering many stories at once. And I'm impressed and, and in some ways in awe at the work that journalists are doing. And frankly, that was one of the things early on that caused me to try to assist journalists who were covering legal topics because I admired what they were doing and I wanted to make sure the public understood um, what was going on. These are often very confusing um, you know, areas to cover. Yeah. So let's bring in Christy Parker. Christy spent over 15 years in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, most recently as a deputy chief, where she supervised and prosecuted federal criminal civil rights violations. Um, she also uh, is now an uh, attorney at Protect Democracy, um, a nonprofit organization that um, tries to protect um, and defend our uh, threats to our democracy, particularly now um, against the Trump administration, and she is the counsel um, representing um, a large group of authors and writers um, who are uh, facing uh, First Amendment threats from Donald Trump. Christy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we now have a president in Donald Trump who openly attacks the free press. He calls the free press the enemy of the American people all on a very frequent basis. Uh, and he's taken a lot of actions that target uh, not only the free press, but freedom of speech. And I want to c- kind of talk about that more um Broadly, because there are so many different attacks by Trump against the free press and the freedom of speech that I think it's important for everyone to understand what the threat is and how our legal system is going to respond to that or can respond to that. Um, and so just in a broad sense, you know, we the First Amendment protects the freedom of speech, the free press. How, just as a legal matter, what, what does that mean? What are the limits of the First Amendment? What does it protect? So so the primary thing that the the First Amendment protects is it protects individual citizens and, of course, the press. There's a separate press clause in the First First Amendment. But it it protects us all from government action that seeks to retaliate against or suppress speech. So just to be clear... The First Amendment doesn't protect uh, individuals when private entities uh, censor their speech or take actions to limit their speech, correct? That's correct. 
And so, you know, for example, Donald Trump has talked a lot about Facebook and Twitter and social media. In fact, so have uh, people on the other side of the aisle. But but those those um, concerns, while they may impact speech, are not traditionally understood as First Amendment concerns. Is that would that be fair to say? That's correct. The First Amendment deals with what the government can and cannot do, not what private citizens can or can't do. One thing that I think is important for our listeners to understand about the First Amendment is I would say that having strong First Amendment protections are is something that is fairly um, nonpartisan. In other words, I think liberals and conservative uh, people in terms of their approach to other uh, segments of our of our or other portion of our constitution I think they they come together in terms of having a strong protection for the freedom of speech freedom of the press i mean would you agree with that i would agree with that and i think that's one of the things that has been so shocking about this president is that he really unlike any other president before him has openly attacked the very idea that we should have freedom of speech or freedom of the press in this country and the right to dissent. Because, yes, as you say, you know, the the First Amendment is one of the things that we all learn about um, early on in our lives, learning about civics, learning about history as a distinctive feature (laughs) of American democracy, that we all as citizens have the right to speak freely, and we have the right to criticize our government, and we have the right to band together to make changes to things in our country, and that the government should never step in and impair that. And yes, Democrat, Republican, you know, right, left, everyone comes together in the belief that, yes, we have freedom of speech. Yeah, I would say that, you know, it's interesting. When, when I think of the development of First Amendment law, I think traditionally— um, there's been broad agreement that the governmental restrictions on speech are, um, you know, completely prohibited by the First Amendment, and particularly, or the, with some except. I mean, there are certainly some exceptions, but generally speaking, the First Amendment broadly protects against government regulation of speech, particularly what's called prior restraints. In other, in other words, trying to stop people before they speak, but. Um, there has been some debate about whether commercial speech, in other words, speech by commercial actors, uh, is protected between, you know, and there's been some partisan disagreement on that or, or certainly a difference in legal philosophy that, that results in that is probably a better way of putting it. And then I would also say there's some disagreement amongst whether or not private entities are acting, uh, you know, under uh, as, you know, agents of the state or something like that. What I think has been interesting here is. We have the president of the United States engaging in core actions that I think any uh, anyone who went through a year or two of law school uh, would know violate the First Amendment. And so, just to turn to the, the what was in the news most recently, you know, the uh, you know, according to news reports, uh, President Trump told his aides that he wanted them to block uh, the, or look into blocking the merger between AT and T and Time Warner because. Uh, he didn't like the coverage that CNN had, and CNN was uh, uh, owned by Time Warner, and of course I uh, appear as a legal analyst on CNN. So, you know, one thing that I find um, 
particularly shocking about that is, you know, the, the core thing that the First Amendment protects is what is called in the in the case law viewpoint discrimination. In other words, discriminating against someone on the basis of their viewpoint. To me, that seems in the core of viewpoint discrimination. Uh, do you agree with that? I completely agree with that. And, you know, I'm curious, there have been a lot of other actions that Trump has taken that seem to also touch on viewpoint discrimination. You know, for example, um, you know, he has there has been, for example, an argument about, um, you know, whether or not him blocking people from his Twitter account. Um, is, you know, because that, you know, is that a public forum and is he discriminating against people on the basis of viewpoint? And can you help us just understand the legal framework, how a court would approach the question of whether or not that would be a First Amendment violation? Yeah, and I, I think the way the court approached that, and of course there was a case brought by the Knight Institute at Columbia, uh, at Columbia University on behalf of some of the Twitter users that President Trump blocked. And the issue in that case became what is what role does President Trump's Twitter account play in our public discourse? Is it his private mechanism of communicating or is it because he's the president of the United States and he uses Twitter so frequently as a means of communicating and really making policy? And indeed, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that Donald Trump really is the Twitter president. Tweeting has become synonymous with him. So the question in that case really was, is his use of his Twitter account state action or his own private action. And I think if you look at the totality of the circumstances and the way the court analyzed it is, yes, in this case, he's the president of the United States. He uses that account, which was once his personal account, every day, sometimes every hour or every few minutes while president to conduct government business. So blocking people from access to that forum, the court said, is a violation of the First Amendment. Yeah, and one thing that I find, um, you know, interesting about that is Trump has at times announced policies over his Twitter account. For example, the transgender ban um, appeared to have been, I think it was the commandant of the Coast Guard. There was reports that he learned about that, uh, who, you know, he obviously the head of an, ag an agency that would be, you know, would be impacted by that, learned about it from looking at the Twitter account. We've had public officials who are fired by tweet, learned about them, they're being fired by a tweet. So, um, you know, he's engaging in uh, very significant public actions using that Twitter account. And anyone who's blocked uh, would not be able to learn of the news uh, when it happened, would not be able to access it. And presumably he's not he's not blocking people for some facially neutral reason, like, you know, whatever. They don't tweet enough or something like that. It's because of their viewpoint. They, they're saying things he disagrees with. That's right. And I think when, one thing that you can certainly say for this president is that he he does not hide his motives for doing things. He's not subtle. I guess in some respects you could say that he actually gets away with some of the things that he does that are so outrageous because he's hiding in plain sight. I think people just have a hard time 
wrapping their heads around the idea that someone would so overtly say, I'm doing this because I want to suppress your speech. I'm doing this because you cover me unfairly. I'm going to use the government against you in order to retaliate against you. He says that so straight out that I think sometimes people don't believe that he really means it. But as we've seen in the reporting recently about the Time Warner AT&T merger, he really was calling in his underlings and and telling them you need to go block this merger and of course we know the the department of justice in fact did try to do that and whether or not you think that there was there were good policy reasons for regulating a merger like that we know from recent history that the department of justice hasn't tried to block a a merger of that nature for more than 40 years yeah, I, what I found very interesting about it as someone who's practiced a lot of antitrust law is that that was what's called a vertical merger. In other words, well, the types of mergers that the Justice Department is usually concerned about is what's called a horizontal merger. In other words, um, when, you know, let's say Pepsi and Coke want to merge, well, the, they're going to take, oh, that's essentially the new entity is going to control most of the, of the soda industry. Um, but this was a merger in which, you know, AT&T is doing things like selling cell phones and Time Warner is... Um, you know, creating uh, you know various networks like HBO and and CNN and so forth. They're doing things that are largely distinct. I mean, there there may be some overlap, but largely different. So it's what's it's what's called a vertical merger, where you're mer- merging things that are maybe related but different industries. Typically, the Justice Department doesn't get involved in those, as you pointed out. Uh, it's something that, if anything, progressives have been agitating for the Justice Department to get more active in. And here we have a very conservative uh, or very right wing. I don't know if it's conservative, but very right wing administration uh, with a Justice Department that has been very reliably conservative, then headed up by Jeff Sessions. Uh, taking a very aggressive antitrust stance towards this particular company when in other contexts they were not necessarily doing that. Very unusual. It drew suspicions for me at the time. I very publicly said that there was very suspicious to me. It just did not seem like the sort of activity that the Justice Department under Trump would be doing. And there was a lot of oddities in the, in frankly, the, the, the complaint itself that, that raised some red flags to me. And of course, now we learn the real reason, which a lot of people suspected because Kushner and others had been talking about Trump's concern with CNN. And as we know, Trump has been tweeting out to get back to the, the Twitter handle. He's tweeting out that he thinks CNN is bad. He had a body slam of CNN, I think, video that was tweeted. And one thing I find interesting is he essentially labels, he labels certain news organizations as the enemy of the people, it, it, to me, the the way in which he's gone about that takes on a different character than prior presidents. In other words, Richard Nixon, uh, even you know Bill Clinton, lots of presidents were not happy with members of the press at points in time. But there's something different about saying that the press in and of itself is the enemy of the people. And to really go after the idea of truth, in other words, to dispute things that are demonstrably true uh, and say that they're fake news because they come from news sources that don't cover him in um, a very, um, uh, you know, fawning way. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, one, one of the things that my organization protect democracy is so concerned about is that the, the very distinctions 
you're pointing out there between the way President Trump deals with his dislike of certain ways in which he's covered and the ways that previous presidents have is that Trump's behavior is very much in line with authoritarian leaders throughout history and in recent times and the way they deal with the press. So that phrase, enemy of the people, is something that I think um, Joseph Stalin said about the press. And as you point out, the point of defining the press as an enemy is part of a larger mission to discredit the notion that there is any such thing as objective truth. So that that plays in at the same time to Trump's use of the constant refrain of fake news, fake news, they're all fake news. And, you know, this week we see him over in uh, the United Kingdom claiming that he's being greeted as, you know, a hero when we know from the press that he's being protested everywhere he goes. But he says, you can't believe that. That's fake news. So this really is the American president behaving like someone who doesn't accept our democratic system of government and the core components that form it. And the most core of those components is the right to dissent. So I think you've hit the nail very much on the head about what makes Donald Trump's behavior both so illegal under our Constitution and also so very disturbing to those of us who want to maintain our democracy. Yeah, I mean, to me, it goes it, – it's so – it's it's very, very deeply disturbing to me. And some of the things that he does that are legal um, but are very reprehensible that seem counter to the notion of our democracy to me, um, like, for example, just his repeated statements about how the press is the enemy of the people and going after – you know, fa- denying the truth and going after really the idea of truth, um, the idea that there are facts um, that you can verify, uh, to me, it's very – dangerous because what I think is so important about the First Amendment is that it's a the protection of the freedom of speech and freedom of the press is to enable the people of the United States to be the ultimate check against tyranny. In other words, the the people are going to be uh, well informed and ultimately they're going to quickly vote uh, and protest and use the uh, the rights that are inherent in the in our and 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 um, uh, enumerated in the Constitution to be able to, you know, uh, in you know, enact change and, and cause change. And what Trump is trying to do is he's essentially telling members of his base, people who listen to him, that you can't believe what you read, you can't believe what you see, you can really only believe. Um, you know, what I tell you, I am the new source you can trust. And I will tell you, I have anecdotally seen a lot of that. I mean, particularly since Trump has ramped this up against CNN and after I signed a, a contract with CNN, so I had CNN near my name, I've had a lot of, you know, threatening, menacing, um, disrespectful, whatever. I get messages and emails uh, and replies constantly, and it's dismissing me 
as a human being because of my association with CNN instead of tackling any idea. And the idea is that association with that entity means that any words that I say are thereby false. Very, very dangerous, uh, very dangerous uh, concept for the president of the United States to be advancing. Uh, Without a doubt. I mean, I think it's extremely chilling that he is able to motivate the people who follow him to take up this language and to actually use it and to use the same platforms he uses, you know, primarily social media, but to attack people for the things that they're saying. And I think, you know, one of the things we all need to worry about is it doesn't violate the First Amendment, as you say, for him to for the president to just say things, to offer his opinions about the media, to say that they're fake news, to say that nothing they say is true. He can say those things, but at the same time that he says them, he is motivating and he knows this. He knows that he is mobilizing the people who believe them, believe him to engage in conduct that has the effect of potentially suppressing people's speech. We've seen the media be very resilient and very uh, courageous in continuing to cover the president in spite of the constant attacks and in spite of, frankly, uh, the, the fear he's generating in many members of the media that they are vulnerable to attack. And we've seen members of the media be physically attacked, um, shot, threatened, all sorts of things like that. Yeah, but, we, you know, people are continu- continuing to speak. But but at the same but at the same time, when you look at what that might be doing to all the people out there who don't have big media companies behind them and the protection that they can get from lawyers and security, we just have no idea how many people there are out there who have actually succumbed to the notion that, hey, I don't want to be involved in criticizing this president because of the things that he does that are are threatening and chilling. Yeah, I will say we did cover previously at the time when there were, um, you know, packages sent to CNN with, you know, bombs or explosive. I think they're termed explosive devices by somebody who appeared to have been, you know, have, um, uh, you know, uh, in, you know, in had had been influenced by that rhetoric, and I will just say there were you know numerous. I was in a CNN bureau at that time, and or that day, and it, there was a lot of concern and fear there. I, you know, I've been threatened a lot when I was a federal prosecutor. To me, it's something that it was more. It's very serious, but it was I was more used to it. To but to a lot of folks, you know, it's just like, why am I getting involved in this? So I do think it has an impact, and I will say as well. Um, you know, Trump, uh, you know, one thing that our First Amendment has does and our First Amendment case law does is it tries to generate a cushion to um, allow a, what's what I, the Supreme Court talked about is robust public debate to flourish. And there's an important decision that a lot of folks may not know about. It's called New York Times versus Sullivan probably the most important Supreme Court case. And it's a case that Trump is essentially called publicly called on to be overturned. But it's a case that has, I think, allows for an important cushion in public debate and discourse. I was wondering if you can you explain what what that uh, decision uh, means for us? And then we can talk a little bit about what Trump is suggesting uh, to do with that. 
Yeah, so what Trump has done is he has called for um, the repeal of all, you know, libel laws, which are, of course, the, the laws that protect the press from being sued and stopped from speaking by, you know, placing a buffer between, you know, what the press covers and essentially who they're covering and, and by saying that, you know, if you're if you're covering a public figure, they can't stop you from covering them negatively. They can't use the courts to prevent you from speaking, um, and particularly if they can't prove that what you're saying is false. Exactly right. So the Supreme Court in New York Times versus Sullivan uh, held that in or- if uh, someone is a public figure – in order to make a libel claim against them, this is the New York Times, of course, was the um, the party at issue in that case, then you have to prove what's called actual malice. In other words, that there was re- either they knew that they, what they published was false or they in, you know acted with reckless disregard for the truth. And what the Supreme Court said was essentially that the robust public debate that the First Amendment is intended to foster would be chilled if – uh, organizations realized, thought that if they didn't fa- if they didn't fact check purposely, if there was a correction that they needed to issue, that meant they were going to get sued for a lot of money. They would spend so much time uh, with fact checkers and w- to to avoid lawsuits, and that if there was a threat of a lawsuit from somebody, they would have to cease publication. And Trump has you know called multiple times for that to be changed potentially not realizing that that's a Supreme Court decision. I think the chances of that decision being overturned are very, very low. But it goes to show that he's really attacking what I think many people consider the leading case or the most important case in First Amendment history. That's right. It just just underscores that, again, unlike, uh, as you've pointed out, you know, all politicians have issues with the way that they're covered. You know, many of them would love to, you know, shut down, you know, media outlets who they think are particularly negative for them. But what those people have not done is ever come out and say, and even Richard Nixon didn't do this, you know, come out and publicly say there just shouldn't be any protection for this, these people. This notion of freedom of the press is, you know, yet another one of our IP calls that are very stupid laws. So he, he fundamentally does not accept the premise that we really should have freedom of speech in this country and that he, just like everyone else, and certainly like any government figure, is subject to being criticized by anyone who wants to criticize him. He does not accept that. And what's dangerous about him is that he is fostering that belief system in a lot of the people who support him. You know, he is teaching them to believe that the First Amendment is not something that we should care about, that these institutions that we have that set up the right to for people to dissent and that limit his ability to act like a king should exist. And again, I think the fact that he does it so overtly has for a good bit of his presidency lulled people into believing that it isn't really serious, that it's all just some kind of entertainment. But I think we're finally coming to see, 
in, in lots of realms, and you can link this to what's gone on with the, with the Mueller investigation, but that, that he really is serious when he says, I'm going to use these institutions as my personal toys, and I am not going to respect the notion that our constitutional rights are really operative and really protect people who criticize me. Yeah, I, I one other thing that he's done, by the way, that is legal for him to do, but really has an effect on the fir- on our First Amendment values and on public debate is the way in which he restricts access to journalists. So for a period of time, we had an, an episode a long time ago about the um, him pulling the press for, uh, pass from Jim Acosta, who's also a CNN uh, a reporter um, and. He, you know, there was a lot of debate about whether he's doing that in a neutral fashion or not. And now what we have is we don't get press briefings. I mean, there hasn't been press briefings in months by the White House press secretary. And there used to be a briefing every day. Now, the president is not required uh, by by the Constitution to or or any law to have his press secretary conduct a press conference every day. But the fact that he is not, you know, put the administration is not putting someone out there who has to answer tough questions every day about what happens in the news every day um, means that he can control the questioning much more. So now what happens is he'll he'll take limited questions from the press himself when he's, uh, you know, uh, on the way to some, to some other event. And so they'll get two or three questions and he'll pick or choose the ones that he wants to answer and he'll ignore the rest. And even though I think a lot of people were unsatisfied to hearing Sarah Sanders say things that appeared to be untrue or for her to ignore questions, that image of her there, you know, facing tough questioning on whatever the issue of the day was, I think was an important part of holding uh, the administration accountable to uh, to, you know, issues of public concern. Yes. And it's just it's just yet another way in which he has disregarded all of, I think, what we call the, the democratic norms that we all have just grown accustomed to, that, that our presidents would periodically submit themselves to holding press conferences. And at the very least, that they would have a spokesperson who would interact with the press on an almost daily basis. And it, and it even extends in this administration beyond the White House. I mean, it seems as though the the daily briefings that used to occur at the State Department and the Department of Defense have just completely vanished. And what we have is Donald Trump using his Twitter account to communicate directly to people the message he wants to communicate and refusing to allow anyone to directly question him. And I think that's a very powerful tool of propaganda that he's using, whether he's doing it strategically or it's just an instinct that he has to be a propagandist. But again, it's it's another very uh, dangerous sign that he simply does not believe in and has no uh, faith to his oath of office that it's his duty to take care that our, you know, democratic institutions be respected. 
I think that's right. You know, one thing that's interesting is the tweeting ultimately drives a much broader universe. So uh, recently Trump gave a speech and there was a sign uh, near near the podium that said no collusion, no obstruction. These slogans that he had developed on Twitter became something outside of Twitter. And, you know, he gives a lot of uh, the vast majority, if not all, almost all his interviews to Fox News, which generally is basically taking a lot of. You know, the, their opinion folks particularly are taking a lot of their cues from Trump's Twitter account. And so he'll tweet something about, you know, his slogan of the day. And then you have effectively a, a, mach- a kind of a noise machine that follows along from that. And it's very unmoored to factual uh, development. Yes. And I think you can even, you know, see it in other realms as well. And again, it's not unusual for politicians. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 20 years, and part of the reason I came here is because I didn't want to be a politician. I worked at the Department of Justice, but I enjoy politics, and I follow it closely, so I consider myself something of a, of a political junkie, and I understand that you know politicians want to control the narratives around what they do and have the most positive message put out there about what it is they're doing and to shape pub- the public's view of it. But again, it's just so much different with this administration. I mean, they really go to extreme lengths to deprive the public of the information that they're supposed to get and to define what is reality for them. So I think if you look at the way they treated the release of the Mueller report. You know, the public didn't see the Mueller report first. It was it was filtered through Bill Barr and given a frame that wasn't true or accurate about the report, but that was an effort to deprive the public of the raw information we were supposed to receive until they had a chance to frame it and destroy any credibility it would have. You know, uh, I was wondering, Christy, I've been broadcasting for about five years, and a lot has changed uh, in the time since I started here at WGN Radio. I I wonder, you know, because the president does use Fox News, uh, both for his own information and to share information, should he open the uh, libel laws or change them? Would that also, you know, would people be able to go after Fox News in order to say that this is, you know, an organization that is libelous to the truth? You know, I, I suppose that might fall in the category of, you know, be careful what you wish for, you know, opening up a, a sort of free-for-all where, you know, people start doing news organizations for not telling them what they think should be the truth. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we, we would have a very different world if we had lawsuits that were, you know, going back and forth. Um, about public figures where as long as you could prove that, um, you know, there there's some fact that wasn't accurate, then you should recover money. Uh, you know, you know, and obviously there are other category, there are other hurdles with with uh, defamation and libel law. But that would if that effectively became the test, that would chill a lot of speech. Uh, it would create a lot of work for lawyers like myself. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> and, I, I think very school. few people would be very interested <laughs> In going into the media industry, if it were just simply a free for all for people to to sue every time, you know, they they wanted to claim something was inaccurate. You know, the, the, right. the New York Times 
versus Sullivan was decided for a very good reason, and that was to make sure that, again, people would not be chilled from being in the marketplace of ideas. Exactly right. And there are these and most states have something called a slap anti-slap statute, which essentially um, gives additional protections and makes it so that there can even be attorney's fees recovered if a frivolous uh, libel or slander suit is filed against a reporter, for example. Um, One thing that I would like to talk about now is, you know, you have yourself um, uh, with Protect Democracy, where you work, have filed a lawsuit on behalf of a lot of authors and writers. Can you tell us uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that lawsuit against the Trump administration? Sure. I mean, it actually is very much what we've been talking about here today is, uh, again, my organization, Protect Democracy, is concerned with protecting our democratic institutions and preventing our government from sliding into authoritarianism. So naturally, one of the key things that we are concerned with is preserving the right of American citizens to dissent. And one of the things that has jumped out at us on a daily basis about this president is is just, again, what we've been talking about, that he does not accept the First Amendment. He does not accept, accept the concept of freedom of the press. And he has started from the very first day of his campaign with a, a sort of an accompanying campaign against media who he claims covers him unfairly. So he started his campaign by issuing threats to do exactly what his Justice Department did. He started threatening to intervene in the Time Warner AT&T merger to retaliate against CNN, going back to the days of his campaign. He continued that after he became president, and he engaged in what we identified as a pattern of credible threats and retaliatory acts aimed at various media companies in addition to CNN. So like the Washington Post, um, NBC is one of his targets. And he's also targeted individual journalists, like as you pointed out, Jim Acosta, and he's he's targeted media commentators like, uh, like John Brennan and gone mm-hmm. after their security clearances. So what we did was we, we filed a lawsuit on, on behalf of Pen America, which is an organization of writers and journalists whose mission is protecting free expression. And what that lawsuit does is it alleges that the president has engaged in a scheme to threaten and retaliate against media companies by using the levers of his government power to suppress unfavorable coverage. And we have alleged that that actually violates the First Amendment. And can you give us a sense of what that scheme is? It's interesting because we've talked uh, throughout this conversation about all sorts of ways in which the Trump and his administration have attacked not only um, the free press, First Amendment values. What specifically is sort of the core of the practices in the suit? Sure. So the, the core practices in the suit are we've identified 
five different categories of things. So there are his threats to intervene in in mergers, specifically the Time Warner AT&T merger, his issuance of an executive order to review Amazon.com's postal rates for the purpose of going after Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post because of the Washington Post coverage of Donald Trump, his threats to intervene or have the FCC intervene in the issuing of broadcast licenses against companies he believes cover him unfairly. And again, he's made a special point of attacking NBC in that context. His threats to and his actual revocation of White House press passes and his threats to and actual efforts to revoke security clearances of former government officials who've gone on to become media commentators. And what we've alleged here is that th- these are not just a, a, you know, a series of discrete acts against individual companies, but rather part of a much larger scheme to create this credible threat of retaliation that hangs over the heads of any journalist who might seek to criticize him and which we have argued in our suit creates a chilling effect on speech. It's designed to do that, and that's what it does, in fact, do. So in what court is this uh, this, uh, suit been filed? It's filed in the Southern District of New York, and that is where PEN America is located and incorporated. So what uh, some lawyers might say is, well, how does PEN America have what's called standing? In other words, how is it that PEN America – um, is injured by the the actions that Donald Trump has taken and the Trump administration have taken towards all these various media companies. So the courts recognize a concept of standing called organizational standing, which works in a couple of different ways. Organizations <laughs> who have a mission interest in a particular area can bring lawsuits on behalf of their organization when an action of the government impacts and injures them and their ability to carry out their organizational mission. There's another feature of organizational standing that allows organizations to bring lawsuits on behalf of their members who have suffered an injury because of, in this case, the government's conduct. So we have we have claimed standing in both of those contexts. I'll focus on the representation the representational standing aspect of that. And that is the Pen America has a lot of members who are journalists who work for the various companies that President Trump has directly targeted. So, for instance, they have multiple employees, including Jim Acosta, who work for CNN. They have multiple employees who work for the Washington Post, 
Um, Dana Milbank is one of those members who recently wrote about his press pass and lots of members who work for NBC and other organizations who hold White House press passes. So our, our position is that these members are affected by the president's actions toward their companies and that all of the journalist members of Penn who are engaged in in work that would have them criticizing the president or producing work that he might deem to be critical at some point. They are all part of this group of people who suffer under this credible threat of retaliation that the president has set up through the scheme of retaliation. That's really interesting. That's that's a, a, a really good plaintiff to have uh, in, a, in a suit like that one. Uh, and just so listeners understand the importance of that, uh, a lot of you listening may be very concerned about what Trump is doing to CNN or the Washington Post or to individual journalists like Mr. Acosta. But you are not able to file a lawsuit uh, just because as a concerned citizen, you're worried about what Trump is doing to the country. Courts deal with disputes where the individual being harmed is the one who is filing the lawsuit. But here, essentially, um, uh, Christie's representing an organization, as she pointed out, that that all these people are part of and they are, you know, collectively joining forces like a union might or other organization to see, you know, whatever that organization might be, an organization of homeowners or something. You have an organization that is a group of people who all are, you know, situated in a certain way and are suffering uh, particular types of harm. That's really interesting. So what 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 stage uh, uh, is this litigation in at this point? So we filed our complaint back in October. Uh, we amended our complaint based on the continuing nature of the president's threats and retaliatory acts in February. And I would say about six weeks or so ago, the government filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit, which was something we expected them to do and is routine in these cases. But they they filed a motion essentially saying that our organization should not have standing to sue in this context. And also, um, rather disturbingly, saying that the president of the United States should not be subject to having Uh, relief imposed against him by the courts, that he should have immunity from having a court order issued against him, and also alleging that, you know, our our claims are, as I I said earlier, a series of discrete incidents rather than an overarching pattern of conduct. So fairly standard arguments that you would expect the government to make in a case like this. Well, and with we the exception filed of the our second response one, right? to that motion about uh, three weeks ago. So we're at the stage where we're waiting for the court to either hold an oral argument on the case or issue a ruling. And as I know you know, um, Article Three judges have a lot of discretion over how to control their dockets. So it's really up to the judge at this point 
exactly how she wants to proceed in acting on that motion. Well, it's interesting, Christy, to, you know, it seems to me that our arguments one and three are very standard. I would see that in any kind of, you know, any case like this. Certainly standing was my first question to you. Uh, and I could see someone saying there should be a multiple lawsuits instead of just one. But the second argument strikes me as uh, a little bizarre uh, or unusual. Can you tell us a little bit more about the argument that the government's making about um, the limitation of court's power? Sure. So what they're saying is that there is a body of case law and legal doctrines that have developed over time that immunize the president because of the the nature of his office from having a court issue orders against issuing injunctions or uh, declaratory relief against the president. That's interesting. I will say that one theme that has developed in this podcast, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners at this point are about to pull their hair out, is the way in which um, the president uh, seems to be, in many ways, as a practical matter, above the law. A lot of folks I know are frustrated when we, when Patty and I read comments from listeners. They're frustrated about how um, it doesn't seem like the legal system is swift enough to catch up to what Trump is doing. Um, you know, how how do you respond to um, listeners who are like, OK, this is, you know, yet another lawsuit, but there's all these legal things and nothing ever seems to happen. What would you say to them? You know, I would I would say to have a little bit more optimism than that and think in terms of the larger context of our history where citizens have been able to invoke the power of the courts as an independent branch of government to check misbehavior by the executive branch. And I, and I would note with respect to the the doctrine the government is claiming insulates the president from from being subject to court orders that, you know, there is a very limited doctrine that says that the court should not get involved in solving what are actually political disputes between Congress and the president or intervening in discretionary decision making that rightfully belongs to the executive. But the much broader context here is the, that the courts were developed to, as Marbury versus Madison said, to say what the law is. And our Constitution makes it very clear that the president actually is not above the law. And we do not think that their point is well taken here. And we intend to use the courts the same way, you know, people from time immemorial have to do cases just like New York Times versus Sullivan. You know, when the government steps out of line, we're going to ask a court to put it back in line and believe in our system of government that, and believe that that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I have to say, if there are some things that give me hope, I do think the courts do give me hope. There are times where we get decisions, I think, that have um, made uh, some significant impact. Uh, you know, we saw some recent decision, uh, you know, two recent decisions um, that uh, that said that, for example, the Trump administration's response to congressional subpoenas was uh, unlawful. 
And um, I think that's already had some impact. We're starting to see some movement by the Trump administration, uh, more flexibility uh, towards Congress. And I think the other thing that is giving me quite a bit of hope um, is the First Amendment itself, because despite all that we've talked about, all the assaults that we have, the First Amendment is live and well in this country and people are speaking and people are organizing. And it and they're voting, and there was a, certainly a very significant shift in the last election. There very well may be a, a shift in this election, or some changes in this election coming up in 2020, and that is going to be due to people's ability not only to speak but to organize. And those are core First Amendment. The right to peacefully assemble, for example, is another uh, First Amendment value. I think that's right. I think. We, we as Americans, as I said at the outset, are, are raised to believe that we have this fundamental right to speak and to band together and seek to change things about our government that we don't like. And I think you hit it right on the head when you talked about you know, citizens and people organizing because, you know, every, our Constitution – is really a, a set of high-minded ideals and words on a piece of paper. But the people who have made those ideals really mean what they say they mean are the people who have organized and said, hey, you know, equal protection of the law applies to me. You know, voting rights apply to me. So what people, I think, should take away from all of this is certainly be mindful of what's going on. You know, monitor all the lawyers who are bringing lawsuits. But get out there and do what you can do as citizens and use your First Amendment rights to make it very clear that you don't believe the president is above the law. I'm curious if uh, what you both think about the fact that there are so many that refuse to allow any restrictions when it comes to the Second Amendment. They want uh, they don't want to have any sort of gun control. And yet there seems to be this rush to have control over the freedom of speech. It's it's fascinating to me. It's such a contradiction. It is fascinating the different notions people have of the absoluteness of constitutional rights, depending on what the right is. Exactly. It's, it's very interesting. I do agree with you when I hear the, the folks who are very avidly interested in promoting an individual right to bear arms, their view that that is not subject to any restrictions whatsoever, when virtually every other constitutional right that we have has been interpreted to have at least, you know, some reasonable restrictions placed on them. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing I would just say, to, you know, there are I I I hope uh, some people listening to this a podcast who are fired up about the First Amendment and are concerned about the assault on the freedom of the press and free speech and and so forth. What can they do to get involved? Well, certainly one of the things they can do to get involved is get involved in organizations like mine uh, that actually spend every day thinking about these issues. Um, There's our organization. There are other organizations out there that spend a lot of time thinking about how to organize around making meaningful change in these realms in which we're seeing our democracy 
he eroded. That's right. And I think another thing that citizens can do is support organizations that do particularly investigative journalism that you believe in. So there, I know a lot of folks who will say, well, this is behind a paywall or something like that. Well, you know, if you find yourself constantly trying to read articles from a particular news organization that you think is doing important journalistic work, consider supporting that organization with a little bit of your pocketbook because – in this era when newspapers have been dying and the entire media market is changing, um, a lot of the people that you, um, re- Christy, represent uh, in PEN America, the, the, the members of that are people who are employed by organizations that we can support through our pocketbooks. That's exactly right. And, and just to make a, a broader point about PEN America is, you know, they are an organization that supports free expression around the world. And while they do have many high-profile members who've written Pulitzer Prize-winning novels and who are Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters, you know, the, the vast membership of that organization is just people who are concerned about free expression and who have decided to, you know, make a stand for that by joining that organization. And, you know, if you don't have money, uh, you might have time, you know, time to go to meetings, time to go, you know, be part of your local government, you know, time to pay attention to what your school board is doing. You know, if ever there was a time when people should be reinvigorating their interest in the notion that, you know, all politics is local and the personal is political, it's right now. I think that's a great point. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give.